We come to you at this time and we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that we have this opportunity today to come together and to worship you in song and our offering. And as we open your word, Lord, we would ask that today you would be glorified in all that's said and done. You would take the words, Lord, of, of your speaker, Lord, and, and you would mold them and make them what you would want, Lord. I would pray that your word would not return void to you, Lord, but it would accomplish that wherein you've intended and that you would change each one of us as we look into your word today now. For it's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Now you may be seated. As you can see from your outline, we're going to be looking at the book of John and I've entitled the, second, the Seventh Sign. Oh yes, we can release the children. You are released. <laughs> All the mothers are going, ah, oh, good. <laughs> I thought I'd start with a disclaimer this morning just to give you a little background on who I am. I am not a preacher. Um, you get the B team today because the A team is on medical leave. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my background. I'm an Orthodox, some of you know that. Um, but um, years ago, when Pastor and Faith moved down to the Harrisburg area, Pastor had this crazy schedule. And he would teach up at Baptist Bible College. Um, he was teaching uh, master's classes up there in the seminary on uh, biblical preaching, on expository preaching. And then he would come down and he would teach Sunday school. Then he would teach in the church service, then he'd teach in the evening service, he'd do Wednesday night service, and during the week he'd teach up at the college. And I was in the Sunday school class, and I said uh, one time, it'd be really nice if I could relieve Pastor a little bit of some of the workload that he does. And I said, I'll make a deal with you. I said, I'll, uh, I'll try to teach Sunday school, and that'll give you a little break, a little something less that you have to do if you will teach me how to teach. I said, you're teaching master's level people up there, so you could critique me after I do the Sunday school class, and then you could help me to learn better how to teach. And he said, okay, that'd be good. And I thought, that'll really give him a break. And so I did that for a while, and then he went and started another class. So, so, and I think Dan would know about that, because that was that young class that you were in back when you were young, Dan. <laughs> so I said, that was years ago. So it really didn't work out exactly the way I was planning on. But so you get the, the B team today, and we're going to be looking at uh, the book of John. I, I think uh, I taught this lesson years ago, uh, but most of you weren't here at the time because it's been quite a few years. I even looked in the archives of, of, of Grace Community Church to see if it was there, and it wasn't there, the message on, the, on John chapter 11. You know how the blessed, best laid plans of mice and men sometimes go astray? Well, um, you have an outline before you, and I'm not sure how far we're really going to follow that outline, so you might not really have to pay too much attention to it today as we look at the book of John, because a week ago, I found out I was going to be teaching, and I thought this would be a great idea, and, uh, and then as I study it, I get all excited about other things that I find as I'm studying in the scripture, and you get so much more as you study it, as you just go through layers of things that you learn from God's word, and as, as we look at the book of John, and, and your introduction here does hold true, the Gospel of John was written in 90 AD, around 90 AD, and it was the last of the four Gospels 
uh, that uh, were given of the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ when he was here on earth in his earthly ministry. And in this gospel, John gives a clear statement regarding his purpose. And, and you can find that in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And I love the book of John because he's real clear on what his purpose is. And he says there that Jesus did many other miraculous signs that are not recorded in this book, that is the book of John, but these are written that you might uh, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. And so we have his purpose, and his purpose is centered around these um, seven, I call them seven miraculous signs. There's really eight signs. Um, uh, Simeon, they're called in the scriptures, in the Greek. There's really three words for the, the miraculous events that th occurred through scriptures in the Greek. And we have dudamas, a work of power. We also have uh, teras, which is wonders. And then we have the Simeon, or signs. And John talks mostly about these miraculous signs, and he really builds the whole book of John around these seven signs. Really, the eighth sign is after uh, Christ has risen from the dead, and we find there in uh, John chapter 21, when we look at that eighth sign, and we'll study that uh, someday, uh, where there the disciples are out fishing. It's after Christ has risen, and we find that Jesus appears... 10 different times, at least 10 times in his uh, post-resurrection body, his glorified body. It's called the first fruits of the resurrection, his body is. And one day we're going to be the second fruits of the resurrection. We'll get our glorified body. But there he is in his glorified body, and they don't recognize him. They've been fishing all night there in the Sea of Galilee, and they haven't caught a fish. And Jesus comes to the shoreline and he said haven't you any fish and they haven't caught anything and and they said no and he said then put your net down on the right side of the boat to catch fish it's interesting John who is an eyewitness to Christ he brings up these details put it on the right side because he was there he was in the boat and they put it on the right side. And all the fish in the Sea of Galilee ran at the command of Jesus to get in the net. And he said, 153 large fish jumped in that net. So much that they couldn't even pull the net into the boat. It was so heavy. And so they drug it to shore. And in the process... They must have counted out every fish because he knew how many fish there were, John did. So you see that eyewitness account. And John, when they were looking at all these fish jumping in, looked at Jesus and he said, it's the Lord. He knew it was the Lord. And Peter, Peter was so excited that he didn't even wait till they got the boat to shore. He jumped in the water, and you know the story, and rushed to Jesus because Peter had a lot on his heart. It had been just shortly before he had denied the Lord three times. And the Lord was very sensitive to that. And the Lord would speak to him. And three times he would ask him, almost in balance for the three denials, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he would send forth Peter to begin the process of building his church that the gates of hell would not prevail against. Well, that was the eighth sign the eighth miraculous sign. 
Well, John builds his whole book around these seven miraculous signs that Christ did during his ministry here on earth, and he had so many to pick from. I have in your outline here, he speaks of many other miraculous signs not recorded in this book, and this gospel speaks of seven of them, each demonstrating the deity of Christ. I love the book of John because it speaks of Jesus, the Son of God. Each gospel has a different purpose. Matthew, the king of Israel, and Mark, the servant, Luke, the man, and John, the deity of Christ. And yet, in the, in the process of teaching and showing us the deity of Christ, he does not hold back on the humanity of Christ at all. We see him as a wearied traveler there in, outside of Samaria in the town of Sychar. There he's by a well, and he's tired, and he's thirsty. And he's dealing with, talking with a woman who's a Samaritan of all things, a lowlife of the lowlifes. And he offers her eternal life. If you knew who it was that speaks unto you, you would ask of him and he would give you living water. And she comes to know who the Messiah is and leads the whole town out that day and the whole town gets saved. So you see the weary traveler. You see him in today's lesson by the tomb of Lazarus. One who knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the grave. And yet he is standing there allowing himself to be troubled. Groaning within himself. Weeping by the tomb of Lazarus. And you see his humanity in just the position to his deity because he is soon going to raise Lazarus who's been dead four days. An incredible miracle. Well, in your outline here, John had numerous miracles to write about. There are many recorded in the Gospels. One commentator says there's 36. Um, maybe there's more, I don't know, that are specific ones that are brought out in the four Gospels. But there are far more than that in the life of Christ that we will never know about. Think about the one where he, was, he fed the 5,000. It says in that, and I have in your outline in one of the Gospels, it says, and by the way, while he was there feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children, which would be some 15,000 maybe, they always just counted the men. Sorry, women. They just, it had to do with who was the provider of the families and the head of the family units and, and who, would, who could go to war as far as how many men do we have. So they counted 5,000 men plus women, that would be another probably 5,000, plus children, that would be another five to 10,000. There was 20,000 people he fed that day. And it says that day he also healed all their sick. Well, how many miracles would that be? How many people would he heal that day that just came and were healed? And when you think about the context of the feeding of the 5,000, there's um, all these family groups and they're getting ready to go down to Passover soon. And they would be gathering to get ready for this big um, celebration, this big um, Jewish feast that occurred every year. And if you're a good Jew, you would go to that celebration, that feast. And so you go down to Jerusalem. So there they are in Galilee. And they, all these reunions are getting together to get ready to go, to go up to Jerusalem, which would be south. And so you'd have the elderly and you'd have the young. Remember the story of Jesus when he was 12 years old 
and they were in these family units and they thought he was with somebody else in the family and they're already heading back and they realize, where's Jesus? It's like the Home Alone story with Jesus. And, and so they got to go back and find him and there he is in the temple. And he said, you know, didn't you know that I would be about my father's business in my father's house? Well, here's this big group of maybe 20,000 people, all these family units and you'd have grandma with the bad hip and the bad knee, and this is maybe her last year that she's going to make it down to Passover. She's on her last legs, but she's not going to miss Passover. And she's one of those that are the sick. And did you see Grandma? She went and talked to Jesus, and she's out running around with the kids in the field there, playing the ball, you know, playing ball, and she's, she doesn't have a bad hip anymore. How many miracles did Jesus do that day? So John has this whole volume of miracles to pick from. And he's going to pick seven miraculous sign miracles. And they each have a purpose. And the purpose, he says there in John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And then he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He saw the glory of Christ in each of these Samayans, each of these miraculous signs, and he is going to demonstrate or show us who Christ is. You know, when you think about it, if someone came to me and said, I am the Messiah, I am the anointed one of God, I am the one who is the Savior of the world, if he did not demonstrate any miracles in his life, personally, I wouldn't believe in him. There's got to be an affirmation that he is greater than just any other man, that he is, in fact, the Son of God. And Christ clearly does that over and over and over again in the Scriptures. And John brings these seven miraculous signs to demonstrate, to prove that Christ is, in fact, the Son of God, that by believing we might have life in his name. And that's what he says there at the end of, of his of the book of John. And, and so we want to look, as we try to look at the glory of God, and we try to see these attributes, just like Larry brought out last week, the different attributes of God, it helps us to understand more who God is and what he is like as we identify with these different miraculous signs that John is, is bringing out that he had so many to pick from. And the first one he picks is the turning the water into wine there in John chapter 2. We're going to get to, John, to, the, to the 11th chapter, but I want to just kind of pass through a quick survey. And when we think about what are we trying to see with this sign, because we don't want to miss what the sign shows us. It shows us more than some water pots full of wine. Because if that's all we see, then we miss the sign. It's kind of like if uh, I'm driving down the road, and I, I know I've shared this before, but if, if, we got up this, if we got up this morning and it was summer vacation and we're going to take the kids to um, Hershey Park or we're going to take them to uh, Indian Echo Caverns, and they told all their friends you're going to Indian Echo Caverns tomorrow, and so you packed your lunches and you got in the car and you drove down the road and you got to a sign that said Indian Echo Caverns a half a mile ahead, 
and you pulled over and you sat there and you waited there all day and looked at the sign and ate your lunch and then you brought them back home at the end of the day and they went to their friends the next day and they said, well, how did you like any Neko Cabins? You were going to anything? I didn't really like it that much. I didn't really do anything. We just sat there and we looked at the sign. The sign pushed, points to something beyond itself. What is the, the turning the water into wine showing us about an attribute of God? What is it showing us about who Christ is? Well, it shows us a number of things. We see that he filled, it's interesting it says he filled those water pots and they were the kind used for ceremonial washing. Well, what's that all about? These pots filled with water, filled to the brim by the servants, and they were the kind used for ceremonial washing. Why, why wouldn't Jesus just have said, well, okay, all the wine is used up, so just get all the wine skins and all the pitchers and all the bowls that you originally had the original wine in that's been used up, and just fill them up with water and we'll do them again. Well, Jesus is doing something very specific, and John wants us to see that because he says they're the ones for ceremonial washing. What was that all about? Well, it was man's tradition. It wasn't God's tradition at all, but man had added so much to God's law that it had gotten completely off of God's law, and now there was these bowls that you were to wash yourself in, and it wasn't like before you eat, we wash to get bacteria off our hands. They didn't have anything of that back in those days. The idea was, you're a Jew, and you are naturally clean and holy because you're a Jew, but sometime during the day, you might have touched a Gentile. Maybe down in the marketplace, you were buying something, selling something. So you got, you got their moral evilness on you. You got their cooties on you. You got their sin on touch. And so you need to ceremonially wash that off. And there was a whole procedure for that in the Jewish law that had been added to God's law. And it was, you're to take this, this like an eggshell and dip it and roll it down over your wrist to your, to your fingertips. You're supposed to do that three times and then you do it from the fingertips down to the wrist three times and then you put one hand into the, one hand and you scrub it and you put one hand in the other and all the while you're saying certain sayings and that would somehow get this dirt off of you that was sin that you somehow got from touching a Gentile. Not only that, if you went through the air that a Samaritan had walked through recently, you could get sin on you that way. And you wouldn't want to put that food in your mouth now and that sin got into you. And Jesus said so many times, you, you take the traditions of men and you put that above what God has said. And so he fills up all the water pots and they're not going to be able to do any ceremony washing today at this wedding because they're all full of wine, all the way to the brim. And you know how the story went on when, when the master of ceremonies tastes it, he goes to the bridegroom and says, you save the best wine till last. And we see an attribute of God because he's turned something that was essentially worthless into now something of great value. This is the best wine, and this is going to be a real wedding feast now because there's... There's six of these huge water pots. They've got just, I don't know how many bottles I've heard one time. It was like hundreds and hundreds of bottles of, of vintage wine now at this wedding feast. He's pronounced his blessing on the wedding. He's turned 
water. Where there was no grapes, there was no vines, there was no vineyard, there was no wine press, just wine because he is God in the flesh. You see, all things were made by him and without him nothing was made that has been made. And so we see the power over creation. And as we move through the book of John, we come to this next miracle or miraculous sign and we find there in John chapter 4 the nobleman and he's come back down to Cana where Jesus is at in Cana now a second time and this time he's all upset about the fact that his son is dying you know the story in John chapter 4 the nobleman has come down it's probably 10 12 miles from Capernaum where he was and there he is anxious about his dying son. A nobleman, a, a fairly wealthy, obviously a Gentile is now concerned and he's probably used every human method available to try to get his son better and his son's not getting better and his son's dying and he says to Jesus, you need to come down to Capernaum and heal my son. Please come down. He begged him to come and heal his son. And Jesus said, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. So what does Jesus do for those who will not believe unless they see signs and wonders? He gives them signs and wonders over and over and over again because he loves them. And the royal official says, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus says, you may go, your son will live. There must have been something about the authority in the way that Jesus looked at him and spoke to him because it said he turned around and he went back to Capernaum. And on the way back home, he runs into his servants who come and tell him that his son got better. And he inquired as to when and he finds out the exact moment the day before when Jesus had said, you may go your son will live that's when he got better and it says he believed and his whole household believed and so you see a reflection a new attribute another attribute here God is healing Christ is healing at a distance remember when John the Baptist had questions about Jesus when he was in prison and he sent some of his disciples to find out are you the one or do we wait for another? What Jesus' reply was to him, he said, tell him the blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised, and then he will see and know. Because you see, Jesus was all about demonstrating who he was so that individuals would come to know him and believe in him and trust in him who he promised that he was and who he said he was because he was the Lamb of God that was to take away the sin of the world. And if one is to put all your faith upon him, then you must know who he is. And so we see that with a nobleman's son. He heals. And you notice Jesus doesn't say, now what is your son's name? And where exactly does he live? And what is the ailment that he's been diagnosed with? He doesn't say any of that. He knows all things. So you see his omniscience. He knows everything. You see his omnipotence where he heals at a distance. You see his power over this dying 
son. And then we come later to this man who's by the pool of Bethesda, Bethesda, and he is been an, he's been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years he's been carried on out by this pool and he's laying on a mat. And you know the story. He's there by the pool and he's waiting to try to get in the water. And every time the pool bubbles up, it has this medicinal quality and there's a, a, a sense of superstition or maybe it is truth that the, an angel comes down in the water and stirs the water and the first one in gets healed. Only problem is he's never able to get down because somebody beats him down because he can't move. He's been an invalid for 38 years. So Jesus comes along and he says, he gets his attention. He says, do you want to get better? And the invalid said, well, yes, but I can't get down. Every time the water bubbles up, no one's there to help me. And Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. And he picks up his mat and he walks. And we see he did that on the Sabbath. There's so much to learn from these miraculous signs. He did it on the Sabbath, and he did it on purpose on the Sabbath. There's no doubt about that. He does a number of Sabbath miracles, and he does it again against their tradition. They've added so much to God's laws, and God said not to work on the Sabbath, and it would be works for, for financial gain. It was carrying a load of merchandise in through the gate on the Sabbath day, but this was not working on the Sabbath. This was doing a work of mercy. He says, my father works up until now, and I also work. And they wanted that much more to kill him because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Can you see this man who is carrying his little mat, and now he's up at the temple? And why is he up at the temple where Jesus will find him later? He's up at the temple to worship God. He's finally able to go up to the temple himself, up the steps to the temple with his strong legs. I picture these people and in, uh, in they're, they're getting rehabilitation and physical therapy and you see them with the parallel bars and the, the braces on their legs and they're trying to use their legs because they have some neurological problem. They haven't been able to walk for some time and they're so weak because of disuse atrophy and here Jesus says, Arise, pick up your mat and walk. And then he's walking all around with this mat on his back. And they're going, they don't see past the sign to who Jesus is. All they see is he's, he's, they see this mat on his shoulder. And they see it's the Sabbath and he's walking around with the mat and he's not supposed to be carrying a load on the Sabbath. And they're all upset about that. And they say, who told you to do this? You know, and, and he doesn't even know who it is yet, that it's Jesus. And they're all worked up about the mat, and, and they said, you're not supposed to do this. The law forbids you to carry your mat. And he says, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. Can you see that? He told me to carry my mat, and I'm carrying my mat because he told me to carry my mat. And I'm walking on these legs, and you want to see here? I'll do a couple squats for you. I'll do a couple one-leg squats. He said, I'm not putting down my mat because that's what he told me to do, and I'm obediently following him. You see, often... The obedience of the individuals in the presence of Jesus is part of what brings about God's plan in their life. You see the obedience of the servants, and they're filling up these water pots, and they're going to get a huge blessing because nobody's going to know who did it, but they knew who did it, and they obediently obeyed Jesus and, and did the, filled up the water pots. And you see the man, the nobleman, and he says, Go, your son is better. And he goes obediently. He doesn't keep, no, you've got to come down. I can't, you know, you've got to be there. 
Now he just takes him at his word and he goes obediently. And here's this man and he's obediently carrying this load and he's going up to the temple to worship God. And we see Jesus runs into him up in the temple and he says to him um, uh, that he said, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And here you see in this case, in this man's life, sin has brought about his state of being an invalid. And Jesus says, Jesus knows all things. He knows his heart. And there you see, again, the, the omniscience of God. And he says, stop sinning. So in this case, not all cases, certainly not in Job's case, we see sin brought about this ailment, this uh, problem. And then we come to the next sign, and that is the feeding of the 5,000. We talk about obedience. Think of the disciples when he tells the disciples in the setting of the feeding of the 5,000, sit them down, prepare to feed them. And they're going like, we don't have anything to feed them. Well, we have this, you know, if we have a little bit of money here, we couldn't even give them one bite. And we've got this little boy's pack of lunch. And, how and, and they go, they sit them down in groups of 50 and 100, it says in the, in the Gospels. So why are they putting them in groups of 50 and 100? Well, so they can get aisles between them so they can bring all this food that they don't have. But they're going to do it because that's what Jesus said. And they're obediently following his command and they're sitting them all down. And in a few minutes, they're going to see the glory of God. And they're going to see that he is blessing the food and he is creating out of nothing fish that never swam in the Sea of Galilee. And they're all going to be eating them until they got 12 baskets to take later on. And they're all going to have an incredible blessing. And, at the, and we're going to see that he has the power over creation. And again, like turning the water into wine, here he's made fish that never swam. He's made bread that never grew in the fields with wheat and was made into dough and put in an oven yet. Here it is, it's bread. He's just created that out of nothing because he has the power of creation within himself. This is the one all things were made by him. He's the one that formed Adam in the Garden of Eden. And then the next day, well, that evening, he tells them, go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and here comes the next miracle. And so they obediently get in the only one boat that there is, and they start heading across the Sea of Galilee to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And it says in the fourth watch of the night, that would mean they've been rowing all night against the winds and the waves. These fishermen that knew how to row and knew how to navigate a boat. And they've been rowing all night. And can you hear the discussion going on in the boat? Can you think about what... You know, we've been rowing all night. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. We're only halfway across the Sea of Galilee. How are we going to get to the other side? Besides, how's Jesus going to get there? Because he said he was going to meet us on the other side. Why don't we just turn around and have the wind at our back and we'll be back and we can get Jesus? And no, he said, go to the other side. That's what we're doing, Judas. Shut up. Keep rowing. And so there they are, obediently Following what Jesus said, they're halfway across the Sea of Galilee, and here comes Jesus walking on the water. And they get an incredible blessing by seeing he has the power over creation. He has the power over the physics of creation that he has made because he's the one that made it. So he can walk on the water. And, and we see in the other Gospels, there's 
Peter that asks him to call him out on the water, and Peter gets out, and as long as his eyes are fixed on the Lord, he can walk on the water too. But we know what happened when he got his eyes off the Lord. We're going to see that with Martha in John chapter 11. When she has her eyes fixed on the Lord, she can say, I know that you are the Son of God. I know that you are the Messiah. But when she gets her, her eyes later on off the Lord and she's looking at the tomb and she's imagining the corpse inside and she's smelling the air that's present, don't roll back that stone, Lord. By now there is a bad odor. By now in the King James he stinketh. She's got her eyes off of him. And he's got to get her refocused. It so easily happens. And now we go to the sixth sign. And the sixth sign is the blind man. And there he is outside of the synagogue. And he's been begging alms all his life because he's been blind all his life there in John chapter 9. And you better believe he knew one thing. I'm sure he asked his parents when he was a young, young boy... Is it possible, has there ever been a time that maybe a man who was born blind could see? And they found the answer. Maybe they took him to the rabbi. Maybe the rabbi had to study this out. But when the answer finally came back, he knew that it had never happened in the history of time. No man has ever been given their sight if they were born blind. And there he is sitting there begging alms and he heard the question probably for the thousandth time because he was like a teaching instrument here. Here comes the question again. Who sinned? Was it this blind man or was it his parents? A strange kind of, 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 a, of a belief that they had back in those days. Somebody had to sin to cause the fact that an individual would be born with an ailment, in this case, blindness. Either the parents had to sin while this mother was pregnant and therefore the blame went to, and this is their punishment, they're going to have a son that can't see, or somehow inside the womb you could sin and thereby God would judge you and you would be born blind. But there had to be... Door number one or door number two is the reason why he is blind. And so, for the umpteenth time probably, he heard that question. Who sinned, Lord? And Jesus says, it's not door number one or door number two, but this has happened that the glory of God would be shown in his life. That must have perked up his ears a little bit, like, well, I never heard that answer before. And... In a very short time, you see Jesus, who formed man out of the dust of the earth, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, when he formed the first man, Adam. Now he spits in the ground, and he forms some earth again, and he puts the mud in his eyes. He's going to recreate and fix a defect that's in this Adam, this man. And then there's an act of obedience necessary again. He tells him to go and wash. 
in the pool of Siloam, and he goes and washes, and he sees. The first time ever a person sees, and now he comes back seeing, and there's all kinds of discussion because this happened again on the Sabbath, and that wasn't by any accident. Jesus did this again right in their face. He's going to mix mud, and they go like, that's work. And guess what? He's going to carry a load of mud down to the pool of Siloam in obedience and come back seeing. And they go through this whole thing with the parents, you know, is he really your son? Was he really born blind? Yeah, he's our son. He's born blind. But we don't know who Jesus is. You're going to have to ask our son, but we don't want to get thrown out of the synagogue. And so then they go to the son, you know, were you really blind and all this stuff? And yes, and how did this man do this? What did he do? And they want to hear this over and over and over again. I told you before, I told you again, do you want to follow him too? Do you want to be his disciples too? You see in this man, as he's thinking more and more about what has happened, because he's already known no one has ever done this kind of an act before. He goes from a man came to me to this one must be from God because no one has ever done this kind of thing. And so I want to follow him. Do you want to be his disciple also? And ultimately, he's confronted with Christ again. Where is he at? He went to the synagogue to worship. He's been thrown out of the synagogue because he says, I'm his follower. And now there he is standing before Jesus and Jesus says, you believe in the Son of Man. And it points all the way back to Daniel and the Son of Man being brought into the presence of the Ancient of Days, the Father, and he has given all glory and honor and power, and every nation shall bow before him. And It's a picture of the Messiah. Do you believe in the Messiah? And he says, who is he, sir, so that I might believe? He is ready to attach his faith to whoever it is that Jesus says is the Messiah, and he says, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you now, and he falls down, and he worships him. And again, you see the glory of God. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. My wife told me if I go three hours, she's leaving. So, we're going to next week get into the last sign, the raising of Lazarus. But before we do, I want to just get, leave you with one little thought. It was an exciting thing that I came across, and I thought it was completely original on my own, and I found out as I was studying the commentaries that somebody else had thrown this out before, so it really wasn't my own. But here's an interesting thing. Go to John chapter 11. I just want to share this one last thought with you, and we're going to look at this next time. Um, in the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God, God takes the plans of men and he turns them to do exactly what he is planning to do from the very beginning. And I say that to say this. In John chapter 11 and 12, we see the miracle of, of Lazarus and we see the results of that. And I would say... And this was in my hypothesis. It turned out it wasn't an original hypothesis. Um, that the plans of man were to have Jesus crucified after Passover week, after the Feast of, of the um, Unleavened Bread, that week of Passover. That was man's plan. 
But this was the Lamb of God that was going to take away the sin of the world, and he was going to die at Passover. He was God's Lamb. And we go all the way back to the story of Passover and the fact that when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and we know that in the history of the, the nation of Israel. And Jesus is ultimately our Passover. So, if you go with me, I want to just show you a, a couple verses. Jump, jump with me to Luke chapter, no, I'm sorry, Mark, Mark chapter 14. We're going to be done here in two minutes, I promise. Well, maybe not promise, but close. Um, in Mark chapter 14, it says, Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him, but not during the feast. They said, or the people may riot. So there's a decision. They want to get rid of Jesus, but they don't want to do it during the Feast of the, of, of the uh, Unleavened Bread, which would be that Passover week. It's called Passover week. And we see later on in that section the story of this woman. It says, while I was in Bethany, reclining at a table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, this is verse 3 of, of Mark 14, a woman, this is an unnamed woman, this comes up in the other Gospels. A woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. So we have this event, this anointing of Jesus. We've all heard of the anointing of Jesus there before his burial. And we see that some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? Who is the somebodies that are saying this? We don't know in this section. It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. That's the supposed reason that these somebodies, these individuals who are watching this happen, and they rebuked her harshly. It says in verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, one more, time, one more verse, Luke 22 verses 1 to 6. I'll read that to you. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread called the Passover, same event here, was approaching. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. They were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas. That's why Judas went and made this pact with the, uh, the high priests and the, and the Pharisees. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and officials of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money and consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them. Now we go to John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, John for the first time identifies who the woman is. It says in verse 2, This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped her feet, his feet with her hair. So we now know the woman is Mary. Mary, the, mother, the, the sister of Lazarus. Now you go to John chapter 12. It says six days before the Passover it says, it was six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived. Here Jesus had, whom Jesus raised for the dead, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, Lazarus was among those reclined at the table with them, and Mary took a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume and poured it on his feet. So now we know that there is this dinner given in Jesus' honor. It's it's five weeks, it's six weeks after he raised Lazarus from the dead. Mary's there, Martha's there serving. Mary's the one breaking the, the perfume. It's worth a year's wages. Judas is there, and Judas is frustrated. It says, but one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, now we know who this person is that's upset. 
Why, he says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Well, that's Judas making this comment. It was worth a year's wages. He did not. Now, here we're going to get why. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief. He's keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself with what was put into it. He wanted the money. He got all fired up because she broke the perfume, and there goes a year's money that he could have had in the money bag as he was a thief, and he wanted to take it. So what does he do? Satan enters into him, and he goes, and he makes a pact. He makes a pact with the high priesthood, and the plan originally was after the feast, but now they're all excited. They have Judas on board. One of the 12 is going to betray him, and he knows all about it. And so it says... In John 13, that there they are in the upper room, and you know the story. One who puts his hand in the sop with me is going to betray me. And they all look at each other and they go, is it I, Lord? Is it? They still don't know it's Judas. And he goes out and Jesus, Jesus says to him, as he goes out into the darkness of the night, what you do, do quickly. And he goes to the priesthood and he says, I know where he's going to be. I know it can be done secretly because he's, he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they move up the timetable because they wanted to do it after the feast. But instead, it's going to happen at Passover because this is a chance. Now we have a traitor and he's in their midst and he's going to betray him. And it's going to be at a secret place. It'll be at the garden. And so the best laid plans of men get turned to fit into God's plan because ultimately he will... He will be the Passover lamb. And that, that veil will be rent from the top to the bottom at Passover. And there will never be a time where the high priest will have to go behind the veil because the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is going to hang on that cross that day. And we'll come back to this as we look at this miracle next week. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to go beyond the actual miracle and see the sign, to see the samayon, the fact that you are, in fact, the Son of God, the King of Israel, just as Nathaniel said, that you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the sent one, the sealed one that God the Father sent, who came and did exactly what the Father had chosen for him to do, that he would die on a cross in our stead, the Lamb of God, the substitute, the perfect substitute, just as at Passover. There was a substitute, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Help each one of us to know in our heart that we have believed in this one who is the only one, the only means whereby we must come into a right relationship with you. For without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin. And he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Where we trade our unrighteousness for his righteousness at the cross. Help us never to get over who Christ really is that we might believe in him and trust in him in a way that is unparalleled by anything that we have ever believed in or trusted in before. And help us to remember, therefore, who we are because of what he has done. For we are servants of the king. For it's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. And next week, we'll get into the miracle 
of the raising of Lazarus.